So I am not what you might call a highly decorated individual. I do not have a shelf of trophies, a wall of diplomas, or a closet full of prizes. But I do have a couple of awards of which I am particularly proud. I beat out 75 other contestants to get these awards. The actual medals are of the homemade variety. Each one consisted of a foil ashtray and a construction paper ribbon because those were the materials that were available in my college dorm. <laughs> and my college dorm was where I won the top annual award for most sarcastic <laughs> and best sense of humor. I don't believe I had the opportunity to give an acceptance speech then, but if I had been able to do so, I would have thanked my parents for raising me in a home where a certain verbal rambunctiousness was cultivated and where wiseacres stretched back for generations and out to aunts and uncles and cousins. I come from people who, for whom humor was an everyday or even hourly essential, a way to express love and to capture life's joy and absurdity. Humor was also a way to offer criticisms and get us laughing at ourselves. Sometimes when we weren't in really in the mood to do so, sometimes when it was very much needed. The sarcasm that we practiced was generally of the less caustic variety. The role of humor throughout my life and in my work was on my mind when we ministers here at FUS were planning out our, the spring assembly schedule. As we were deciding who would speak when, we noticed that Easter and April Fool's Day fell on the same Sunday. <laughs> Lead me not into temptation. <laughs> especially if you happen to be a non-theistic minister who loves a good one-liner. <laughs> As you can imagine, this convergence was quite the topic among Unitarian Universalist ministers online. The discussions could have been titled, Easter and April Fool's Day, Opportunity or Minefield. <laughs> Some of you know this, but there are UU congregations where Easter and Holy Week are a big deal, complete with communion and even foot washing on Maundy Thursday when the Last Supper is remembered, and much celebration of the resurrection on Sunday. At the other end of the, uh, the, other end of the spectrum, like maybe here, <laughs> there are con UU congregations where you might not hear a single mention of Easter or Jesus at all on Easter. This great range of approaches to Easter is to be expected in a religious denomination that does not have any kind of creedal test. Unitarian Universalism, rather, is built around the idea of shared values and the idea that each individual undertakes that free and responsible search for truth and meaning. All across UU Nation, the handling of Easter is all over the map. Nobody's doing it wrong. Everybody's doing what feels true. The handling of April Fool's Day is similarly diverse. Some congregations completely upend their Sunday mornings. I know one church that, that printed a, a fake order of service. <laughs> it imagined that a large corporation had taken over sponsorship of the congregation. <laughs> and they added the company name to the name of the church. Sort of like if you came in today and we were the Medtronic Unitarian Society. <laughs> we didn't go quite that far here today, but April Fool's lands on a Sunday every five or six years, so there will always be opportunities. And really, if you've been here more than once, you know that we don't need April Fools to do silliness here. We're free to do it anytime. 
Unlike April Fools on a Sunday, the convergence of Easter and April Fools happens much less often. The last time was in 1956. That's because Western Christianity, in rather pagan fashion, <laughs> celebrates Easter on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the equinox. So Easter moves around a lot. This rare gift of Easter landing on April Fools coincides with our monthly assembly theme, which is play. This overlap provides a great opportunity to further explore the idea of humor. When it's playful and when it's not. When it's a tool for survival or change, and when it's a weapon. And how that weapon is wielded. So let's talk for a minute about kazoos and cats. <laughs> First, a big thank you to the Good Sports from the Chalice Choir for agreeing to this unusual request. <laughs> um, yeah, that was not part of their auditions, I'm sure. Uh, it would seem fair to ask, upon learning that kazoos are going to be part of an Easter Sunday service, aren't you making fun of Easter? Aren't you making fun of Christianity? Under the banner of religious freedom and freedom of expression, we would, of course, have the right to do that if we so chose. But giving a playful rendition of Easter Parade, in my view, is not at all the same thing as making fun of Easter itself. The song has a catchy tune, but have you ever listened to the lyrics? It would be hard to come up with anything more shallow. <laughs> The song basically consists of bragging about going to a parade in the company of someone considered to be good-looking, having that person's appearance be admired by passers-by, and possibly getting one's picture in the newspaper for being attractive and wearing a snazzy hat. <laughs> the resurrection of Jesus, the redemption of humanity from sin, and other aspects of the most important Christian holiday do not figure into this paper-thin storyline. The song ignores a religious message that a couple of billion people find hopeful and replaces it with a musical tribute to vanity. <laughs> Fortunately, the song does not take itself very seriously, and we are not obligated to either. For true mockery of Easter and the people who celebrate it, one need only, one need only look no farther than richarddawkins.net. There on the website of the foundation of the famous atheist, you can see a poster-sized infographic explaining all the contradictions about the Easter stories that you find in the Christian Gospels. The poster has a section called Whoppers That Fail the Fact Check, which notes that major events mentioned in the Easter Gospel stories, such as darkness occurring at midday and earthquakes, are not supported by historical records. The content of this poster is interesting to someone like me, as I like to examine the Bible in context to help understand world history and Christian hegemony and our present day. But whoever created this infographic couldn't resist crossing the line into the underbelly of ridicule. The poster concludes with an item called baloney, presenting that as the best option for interpreting the Easter story. I may not have been the only one rolling my eyes at this editorial choice, because elsewhere on the internet there's an updated version of the poster where the baloney section has been retitled as Christian myth, to, haps more, to try to more gently encourage a reconsideration of the narrative. Part of the problem with these kinds of approaches, which are common among the so-called new atheists, is the use of ridicule instead of humor. 
True humor, in my view, has a quality of generosity to it. It is the giving of the gift of laughter and a new or surprising perspective. Ridicule and snark are just criticism dressed up in cleverness. It may be funny to some, but it's never funny and never generous to the person who is the object of the snark. And because it's inherently adversarial rather than relational, snark never, ever changes anyone's mind. More than once in my life, I've asked an activist this question. Is your goal to express yourself, or is your goal to bring about change? Because those are two very different goals, and they often require two very different approaches. You might change yourself by feeling empowered enough to call something baloney, but you aren't very likely to change a single mind. There's also the important question of whether the more biting kinds of humor are punching up or punching down. If snark is aimed at someone of higher status, you're punching up. That's why we don't feel bad when political cartoons or Saturday Night Live take aim at powerful leaders. That's punching up. In fact, satire and ridicule can be, a helpfully can be helpfully corrosive tools in regime change. Not so much by changing the minds of a demagogue's supporters, but rather by affirming and emboldening the opposition. Punching down, by contrast, is picking on the little guy. And this is where mocking or satirizing aspects of Christianity has gotten complicated over the past few generations. Christianity is still the dominant force in our culture. Despite its overall decline in membership, a rather dramatic decline in some ways, it still has the most adherence and the most money and the most cultural and political influence. For non-Christians, taking shots at Christianity, especially when Christianity is used to perpetuate injustice, can feel like punching up. But here's the thing. As a system, Christianity still has power. Some of it helpful to causes we support, some of it terribly destructive to individual lives and human flourishing. But as individuals, Christians in America have relatively less power than they used to. According to Pew Research, the average Christian in the United States makes less money and has less education than American atheists, agnostics, or Jews. The status hierarchy may not have changed, but the actual power of personal agency has shifted even as Christian theocrats have been tightening their hold at the national level. Many individual Christians are experiencing less power over their daily lives. And this feeling of losing control has many white Christians receptive to the authoritarian leanings of a purportedly Christian president. It's actually very easy to fall into a pattern of punching down, especially in the United States. One of the most interesting things I've read in the past few months was a blog post titled, Why America is the World's Most Uniquely Cruel Society. In the post, Umer Hack points out the many ways that the USA is unusually brutal, from forcing citizens to beg for money for their medications to the prolific amounts of gun violence. He provocatively suggests that, as a nation mostly of immigrants, we are largely composed of and descended from people who were beaten down and kicked out of their countries of origin. America was founded by and for the despised, loathed, hated, he writes. And he goes on to say this. 
Each new tribe that came to this promised land brought the burden of being despised, subjugated, and oppressed with them. They were finally above someone else in the social hierarchy. They were not at the bottom anymore. But to be above requires someone else to be below. And so there was a constant battle for relative position within a growing hierarchy. Hence, dominance, competition, conquest soon became the prized cultural values, norms, and institutional goals. Cruelty as a way of life was born. End of quote. Punching down as the American way as a founding principle. Fascinating to me. I'm going to explore our culture's hunger for conquest more in my next talk in three weeks. And if you want to read more of Hack's post, there's a link on my blog at jimfody.com. But for today, I think Hack, Hack's words are helpful context for how humor gets used in the religious discourse of our times. I should mention that I say all these things as someone who does not believe the Easter story as a literal narrative. Note my choice of words and the absence of the word baloney. It's not that hard to be a nice non-believer. I do think it's dangerous for any narrative to suggest that human beings defer happiness and justice to a life and world after death. That's because such promises have been used time and again to justify misery and inequality in this life and in this world. At the same time, I understand that criticizing the Easter story for its lack of, lack of conventionally provable facts misses the point of its appeal. The story of Christ's resurrection has not endured because it adheres to the rules of science and historical scholarship. It's beloved because it offers comfort and it offers a version of hope. It's appealing because many people around the world suffer regularly in ways that most of us in this room can only imagine. People who admire the Easter story can see themselves in the story, see themselves in the suffering of Jesus, and appreciate that there is at least ultimately a joyful ending. Just one example. Think of Jesus as an innocent man who was unfairly and brutally executed by the state. That kind of story is freshly and tragically resonant in communities of color across the United States basically every week now. And there's a happier ending. There's eternal life. The, the endless task of humanism is to work for better outcomes in this life, the only life we're sure of. But for many people, justice in the next life feels more likely than justice in this one and, e and is easier to believe in. The overlapping of April Fool's Day and Easter makes it a good day to remind ourselves of Christianity's radical and rebellious origins. And a number of my UU ministerial colleagues around the country are using today to talk about the idea of being a holy fool. This is a reference to a Bible verse in 1 Corinthians in which the Apostle Paul talks about being a fool for Christ. In looking for a concise explanation of what it means to be a holy fool or a fool for Christ, I found a quote from none other than Stephen Colbert. <laughs> As you may know, Colbert is a devout Catholic, one with a great sense of humor. And it's worth noting that his immense success as a comedian has come from punching up. Colbert describes being a holy fool as, quote, to be wrong in society, or wrong according to our time, but right according to our conscience, as guided by the Holy Spirit. Most of us in this room might not see our motivations as coming from a Holy Spirit, but the rest of what he says makes sense to me. 
to be wrong in society or wrong in our time, but right according to our conscience. This is what the Reverend Lisa Friedman is talking about in the poem we heard Jane read, about having foolish hearts that dare to love, foolish minds that dare to explore, foolish spirits that dare to dream. The people of this congregation and our allies dare to dream all the time. We've long questioned some aspects of the dominant culture and dreamed of greater justice for members of non-dominant groups. We're dreaming of a world of less gun violence, and we're dreaming of a world full of equality and safety for our transgender beloved people. And while it may seem foolish to stand on a freeway or block a light rail track, getting the attention of those in power and reminding people everywhere of the value of black lives is work of the highest order. Our dreams of a better world may make use of reason and strategy. In fact, they have to. But as, as Reverend Friedman writes, we are all fools of a kind. Not even the smartest among us can tell us precisely when our work will bear fruit or exactly what tomorrow may bring. One thing we do know about tomorrow is that it will come, and it will no longer be Easter or April Fool's Day. These two human occasions will go their separate ways for another 11 years. Those of us who do not celebrate Easter will return to creating hope as we can with our hands in the here and now. And as we do so, let us not, let us not be afraid to be fools in all the right ways. As, Red, as Reverend Friedman writes, let us laugh and fall and stand again, for we can never know what wisdom we might yet learn. May it be so.